Today's scripture reading is from the book of Hebrews, verse 5. Sorry, book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 8. So I'll give you a moment to turn to that in your Bibles or your devices. Hebrews, chapter 5, 11 to 6, 8. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the res resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is to cultivate, it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its, it, and its end is to be burned. May God bless the reading of his word. Now I invite Pastor Jeff up for the message. Morning, Crossbridge. Morning, yeah. This morning we are finishing up the first of three parts of our sermon series, Jesus is Better, going through the book of Hebrews. So if you kind of remember, um, going way back to when we first started, we kind of show those three sermon series graphics made by our very talented CBL core member, Grace. And, and I think the first one is always in your digital bulletin or your print bulletin. And so there's a, there's a better redeemer, right? Better redemption, and therefore. And so in these first uh, five or six chapters that we've been kind of working our way through, we talked about how this Jesus that we keep talking about every single week, that we keep bringing up, how he's better than angels, how he's better than the prophets, how he's better than Moses. And then sprinkled in between these, you know, better than passages are, are passages that encourage the original readers and us today to hold fast. That's what we talked about last week, right? To, to fix our eyes on this Jesus. And, and last week, the author of Hebrews was writing about how we have a great high priest in Jesus. So therefore, let us hold fast and draw near. Now we're going to start part two, a better redemption, in, in two weeks, since next week is missions conference. So we're going to take a break from our sermon series. We're going to hear from our missions conference speaker, Wayne Chen. But 
Before we get too far to have ourselves, let's, let's finish out part one today with our passage. So again, remember, we, we've just finished this section where Jesus is called a great high priest. A priest forever, it says, after the order of Melchizedek. And we, we kind of hit briefly on the significance of this guy, Melchizedek, this Old Testament character. But we also said that it's going to get brought up again in a couple weeks when we uh, eventually reach chapter 7. And, and there's a reason for that. You see, because before we start unpacking the, really the significance of Melchizedek and before the author, our author, seeks to instruct his readers in the doctrine of Christ's high priesthood going deeper into the rich uh, theology of this, the author of Hebrews wants to hone in on the challenge of doing that, which is brought on by the spiritual immaturity of his readers. That is to say of his readers that there is an arrested development. Or more precisely, we could say that there is an arrested spiritual development, something that is of uh, great enough concern for our author, that he would pivot and set aside space in his letter to address before he moves on. And so in verse 11, he writes, About this we have much to say, and it, this thing is really hard to explain, because since you have become dull of hearing. And, and so we, we take a look at this challenge, right? This arrested de- spiritual development, this arrested growth. It's marked by a couple of things. First, it's marked by dullness of hearing. He begins by saying, you know, about this. This thing we have much to say about. This thing is hard to explain. What is this thing? It's the, the richer, deeper doctrine of the high priesthood of Christ. And he's not getting to it right away because he's not sure they'll be getting it. And he's not sure they'll be getting it because, as he writes, since you have become dull of hearing. That is why it's difficult to explain something that is so important, something that he has much to say about. Now, as we're kind of working our way through this passage, let's, let's be clear, because the reason for this difficulty, it's not because the author is a, you know, a bad teacher or an inadequate as an instructor. It's, uh, it's n- neither because the readers are themselves uh, intellectually or spiritually bankrupt. Right? He's not making a comment about what they are by nature, but instead what they have become. Meaning that at, at one point, perhaps when they first became Christians, you know, they were not dull of hearing. But at some point, that's what they became. Dull of hearing. And this word dull, it means lazy or sluggish, right? He's saying that they're, they're slow to understand. They have lazy ears. They are hard of hearing. But again, not because they're not capable of hearing, but, but there's a nuance of laziness or sluggishness that kind of characterizes their hearing. It, perhaps it, it's a spiritual exhaustion Right? That, that makes it hard for them to breathe in, hear and receive, and breathe out, believe and persevere in faith. Another way to understand this 
this dullness is to kind of look at the other occurrence of this specific word in the next chapter. So in Hebrews 11, uh, 6, 11 to 12, he writes, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, same word there for dull, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, so I, what is the opposite of dullness, right? That's another way for us to understand what's, what he's talking about. It, it's an earnestness or a, a diligence to hear and receive this message of hope, and then, what do we do with that? Find assurance of hope until the very end. There's an, an eagerness to it. There's a, a readiness to expend energy and effort to not be sluggish. It's to imitate, he says in this passage, to, to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So our, our author sets forth this spiritual malady, right? There's an, an arrested growth, development, marked by dullness of hearing that makes it difficult for our author to immediately launch into a discussion of the profundities of Christ's high priesthood. It's a dullness of hearing that at one point did not characterize his readers, but now it does. Something's changed. They have become this way. And I think this is why it's a spiritual growth issue. He continues on. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And so a second way in which we're to understand this, this difficulty, this challenge of arrested spiritual development, is that it's marked by spiritual infancy. That by this time, they ought to have grown to a place where they could be teachers, teaching others about Jesus, about the gospel. But instead, that's not where they are. They're the ones that need to be taught. Still. They need a, a refresher course. That somehow along the way, they stopped growing. They stopped maturing. The, the passage paints for us this analogy, right? This picture of milk and solid food. He says, like a child, you know, children, they need milk. Or infants, they need milk, not solid food. They are at a point in their spiritual development where they are still spiritual infants. You know, milk is not bad. It's probably more fitting to call it breast milk, right? Because they're infants, they're nursing. That They need that. You give them, uh, as infants, as babies, you give them breast milk or formula before you give them solids, right? When, when the baby comes out of the, the womb in, in the delivery room, you don't feed him, you know, a piece of steak. You give him some, some milk. You give him his mother's milk. And the milk will actually prepare them for solids later on. But, but right now, you know, that's what they need. But here's the, the, the discrepancy, right? They are not new Christians, 
And so perhaps the, the picture that he paints is more like an adult drinking breast milk. Right? It's a picture that doesn't quite fit. So imagine, you don't need to imagine, what, what if I took Titus's bottle of milk and started drinking from it? It's just almond milk. I've, I've learned and been trained not to waste that liquid gold. But you get the picture, right? You can ask a lot of the mothers. They'll, they'll tell you what that means. Right? At, at one point, like all of us, we either needed formula or breast milk as babies, and that was good for us. It was a building block for us. But if we drank that at some point, if we only drank that at some point and kept only drinking that, there would be arrested development. Our growth would be hindered. And it would look really strange. And, and that's what actually happens, right? You have sometimes children who, unfortunately, because of you know, lack of education for parents or other systemic issues, they, they end up being fed only breast milk or cow's milk and no solid foods, way past when they should have transitioned. And it affects their growth, right? Their development. It affects their ability to produce iron, and they become anemic, or they, they have a vitamin D deficiency, and they get rickets, and their bones are softened and weakened, and it affects their ability to mature as human beings into adulthood. So what does this spiritual infancy in which they need milk, not solid foods, look like? Well, it's marked by them not being able to teach others, but needing to be taught the basic principles of the oracles of God. It's also marked by this contrast here, verses 13 and 14, being unskilled in the word of righteousness as opposed to having the powers of discernment to distinguish between good from evil. So there's a sense in which being mature means being able to discern not just between uh, good and evil conduct, right, but also true and false doctrine which includes the former, right? Because our beliefs inform our behavior. But the point is that for mature teachers means that you're able to teach something, which maybe implies that you're able to distinguish between what you are to teach and what you're not supposed to teach. So our author this morning sets forth this challenge that concerns him. And arrested spiritual development marked by a couple of things, marked by dullness of hearing, marked by spiritual infancy, that has come to characterize these recipients of his letter, some of whom have been members of that Christian community, the church, for, for many years. The question, perhaps for us this morning, is to what extent do, do we identify with these same recipients. Now, I'm going to acknowledge that the Christian life is not always linear. Right? It's not a perfect straight line from us being born again as followers of Christ to being glorified when Christ returns. There is a, a cost to following Christ, and sometimes in the day-to-day -day battle for sanctification and the striving to hold fast to the full assurance of hope, that's 612, chapter 6, verse 12 talks about sometimes in that day-to-day -day we falter. 
we fail. We fall back. We do not hold fast or draw near. But Hebrews, over and over again, continues to encourage you and I to run the race, to persevere in faith, to look and remember that Jesus is better, to grow, to mature. Here's one way, I think, of what it might look like in our discipleship. So Jim, Jim Putnam, he, he's this guy who put out these five stages of discipleship. And quite fitting for our passage, he kind of categorizes it into these five life stages. And uh, unborn, infant, child, young adult, parent. And it's true in life, okay, not everyone is a parent or wants to be a parent or even can be a parent. But I think for the, the spiritual purposes for this categorization, it, it's helpful. And we're going to see why. So each stage, as you can see on the PowerPoint, is characterized by a few things, right? So there's the unborn. They're characterized by uh, unbelief, right? Because they're non-believers. And so what they really need at that point is the gospel, right? Not a truncated gospel, but the full gospel. After that, there's infants. Putnam calls it the, the, the discover stage, right? Because when you think about babies, right, that's what they're doing. They're discovering. They're discovering that they have hands and, and feet and they can walk and, and crawl and all this sort of thing. And it's the discover stage because they're characterized by ignorance. These spiritual infants, they have given their life to Christ. They believe in salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, but at the same time, Old habits die hard. They're learning not just new things about faith, but also new things about living out your faith, about that connection between what we believe and how we live. And so what these spiritual infants need is someone who can share their life, share new truth, share new habits. And we talk about discipleship. And as infants grow, they develop into spiritual children, right? So he calls it the grow stage. These children are growing. At the same time, as they grow, these spiritual children are characterized by self-centeredness. And so they know the gospel, right? They have started to learn how to live a gospel-centered life. But the gospel impacts not just what you believe up in here, but how you view the world. And how you live in the world. But again, once they start growing, that self-centeredness starts to be challenged, starts to come to the surface. And so what they need then is to be connected to purpose. Connected to small group, fellowship, community, spiritual family, connected to God. Otherwise, what ends up happening is they have this distorted view, right? That Jesus is Santa Claus to them, there to fulfill their every wish and desire and need. And the church is there then simply to serve and satisfy their every desire. These children then mature into young adults. Putnam calls it the serve stage. Because you have moved beyond being characterized by self-centeredness, and now you're starting to be characterized by God-centeredness, other-centeredness, and service. And so what they need is to be released 
to serve, to do ministry. They need to be provided ministry opportunities to grow and to serve and and to be equipped, particularly for them, by the very teachers that the author of Hebrews was saying that his recipients should have been by now. This last stage, spiritual parents, right, which I think is appropriate. He calls it the multiply stage because spiritual parents, right, give birth, quote-unquote, to spiritual children. They are multiplying. They are characterized by intentionality and strategy, he says. They are discipling others and teaching others. Now, admittedly, right, the Christian life, our lives as we follow Christ, is a lot more complicated than what we can put in a very clear three-by-six grid. You might find yourself not fitting perfectly in any of these categories. You may feel like, well, I'm in between here and there, or, or maybe I'm a little bit of this and a little bit of that, and that's, all of it is okay, right? This is just one of many ways to help us understand where are we in our spiritual growth? How are we maturing? Where, what direction are we headed in? Because perhaps we have been sluggish. We have lazy ears. We have become hard of hearing. We have experienced this arrested spiritual development. This is how our passage continues. The author of Hebrews then takes that. and He encourages us, his readers too, you and I this morning. Let's move on to maturity. Let's press on in our walk with God. Let's hold fast and draw near. Verses 1 to 2. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And we have to be careful here because at first glance, when, you know, even I, when I first read this, it really kind of seemed like he's minimizing Christ. Right, that he's calling the gospel basic and, and perhaps unimportant. And, and hopefully, as a gospel-centered church, you know, we'd have enough discernment that he talks about earlier to say, no, the gospel is crucial, essential, important. And that what he's saying here does not contradict at all what Paul says in his letters when he says he will only know Christ and him crucified. Rather, I think what, we're, what he's getting at here is that progress towards maturity is cumulative. He talks about these six components of this elementary doctrine of Christ that kind of forms this foundation. Right? Repentance from dead works, faith towards God, instructions about washings, which could refer to baptism, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. All these things are the very things that we see the the apostles in the early church proclaiming and and doing. And interestingly, all these things also are not necessarily new to the Jewish people and to these Jewish Christians. right? These are the very categories that had been established in their minds so that when Jesus Christ came, he fills these categories and fulfills them in a way that nothing and no one else before could do. Right? Repentance was not new to them. Faith was not new to them. Even 
Things like the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment was not new to them. But Jesus came and gave more meaning and significance to that. And we talked about those kind of categories last week when I talked about VHS tapes and other ancient artifacts, if you might remember. We talked about Jesus being the, the great high priest, the better high priest. And here we, we have to, to note that it doesn't say, let's not lay a foundation of all these things that are central to the message of Jesus. He says, let's not lay again a foundation. You see, that word again changes a lot of things, meaning a foundation has already been there. It's already there. You don't build a foundation on top of another foundation. You build a building on top of a foundation. And there is only one foundation, and it's Jesus. So what do you do with that foundation? You build upon it. That is that you mature. You grow. Progress towards maturity is cumulative. And that we are not, we're not throwing out Christ in our effort to grow as Christians any more than we would abandon our ABCs in order to formulate sentences. There's these uh, tiny theologian flashcards that I'm going to buy at some point when Titus is old enough. That you could buy these flashcards to teach your children things like theology and attributes of God and things like that. And so you have like the letter A card, right? But instead of A is for apple, A is for atonement. <laughs> and, and on the back it says atonement, right? Hyphenated noun, and then a definition. And, and so these readers of Hebrew, right, they have these kind of like ABCs of faith, atonement, baptism, repentance, just like many of us do. It's essential at the beginning of our development and also at the end because it's a building block. The problem here, though, is that they have just stayed at those ABCs. They haven't really used it, lived it out formulated sentences. They've stayed with the milk and not solid foods. And so all, this, all of us this morning are being encouraged. Let's move on to maturity. I hope it, you know, doesn't come off as a shaming thing, right? Because there's a, maybe a, a real danger for us, maybe for this church, that when we hear in this passage that maybe we're not where we thought or ought to be in our walk with God, that we're triggered or we're ashamed. But, but I, I think there's a key difference here, at least in how the passage is written, that I think changes the, the sense from blaming to encouraging. He says, let's, right? First person plural, right? Not, not you move on to maturity. You move on to being mature. He says, let us, you and I, right? The author of Hebrews is including himself in this. Let us together move on to maturity. It's a communal thing happening here. And it's a, it's a passive voice, right? So for those of you who remember English grammar, right? Passive voice means something in action is being done to you, right? So it's not the instructor carrying the learners forward, but all of us, in one sense, being carried forward together by God, even as we endeavor to cling to him. 
God has an active role in our maturity, in our sanctification. We can depend, depend on him for that. And so we are being encouraged together to move on to maturity. And so again, why does the author take the space to address this? You know, in a sense, almost interrupting himself. You know, talking about the high priest, taking a break, and before he, he continues to talk about that, talk about Melchizedek in chapter 7. It's because, for him, the danger of not moving on is not slowing down, but dropping out. The concern here, which is a very real concern for him, is irreversible apostasy, rejection of God. I don't think that what we have here is hyperbolic language, meaning that it's not an empty concern. It's not a bluff for this author, for the author of Hebrews. It's not a scare tactic. It's not an exaggeration. For him, it's a, a real warning, a real danger. He says, For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. This is one of the more difficult passages in the Bible, if not one of the most. Probably because when we read it, in our own Bible study, in our own time, we might start asking questions like, are they saved to begin with? Can we lose our salvation? And then we put it on to us, right? Can we, am I secure in my salvation? Do we have any assurance that my salvation, our salvation is secure? We might start asking questions very similar to the ones that we ask when we read in the Gospels about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which Jesus says, if you remember from Mark and Matthew, that that would not be forgiven. And very similarly, just like there and here, we ask, oh no, am I guilty of this? Is it all over for me before I even started? And, and these are good questions. For the sake of time, I want us to focus on two things. First, let's not miss the forest for the trees. Right? The, the big idea here, the, the, the focus, the emphasis, is the encouragement here, even in light of this danger that is presented, is to move on to maturity not to be paralyzed by uncertainty. You see, as the author of Hebrews is writing, he, he does mention these very, you know, alarming verses, but there, he intended it to serve as an encouragement to Christians, as a motivation for Christians, not as a threat or to raise questions of uncertainty. Second, the, the profile that he kind of presents here is of someone who in the face of knowledge and even experience of the truth, not in ignorance, but in complete willful and deliberate objection, chooses to reject that light in favor of the darkness. You see, it is a, a hardness of heart that maybe characterizes what we think of the, the Pharisees when Jesus talks about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, where for them, they literally see Jesus, the Messiah, the one they've been waiting for, God, the Son, doing miraculous things, 
casting out demons in front of them. And they are so hard-hearted that they attribute Jesus' work not to God, but to Satan. Something that doesn't make sense because Jesus says, how can Satan cast out Satan? A kingdom divided against itself cannot stand. But that is that willful objection, rejection, and deliberateness. There's a sense, again, when we talk about this for us, in which we don't know what's in everyone's hearts, right? We don't have the ability to see a person's whole life in one look. So in one sense, it's impossible for us to ultimately and decisively say, well, that person was never a Christian, or that person who has left Christ can never come back. Because remember, here the author of Hebrews is, is writing to current Christians, struggling Christians, but Christians. People who are in the church, but perhaps not growing, and he's writing to them to encourage them. To, to help them to move towards maturity. The concern here is not that they lack foundational knowledge. They have the ABCs, but it's lacking fruitfulness in life. What do, what do we do with those ABCs? How do we formulate sentences, spiritual sentences in our life? And the fact that for them, the author of Hebrews says, it doesn't look like they're doing that. It's not a great sign. Again, it's not ultimate, it's not decisive, it's not definitive, but it's not a great sign. And in Hebrews, there's this picture, right, later that he paints of a race, the Christian race. So he writes in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And so again, the concern, the danger of not moving on in this Christian life, in this Christian race, it's not slowing down, but it's dropping out completely. He cares for the people in the same way that we care for each other. And so he encourages us, God is speaking to us through Hebrews this morning. Let us move on to maturity. Let us grow together in Christ, knowing that our salvation is secure in him because it doesn't depend on us. Now, as Paul writes to Timothy, but, Paul, but God's firm foundation stands bearing the seal. The Lord knows those who are his. That is an assurance that we can have. And at the same time, he says, let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Brothers and sisters, Crossbridge, let us together move on to maturity. Let's pray. Father God, we pray this morning that for some of us, we are experiencing some challenges in our walk with you things that have hindered our growth. We ask, God, that we would come before you, that you would take those very things that are keeping us from growing, hindering us, stopping us from really experiencing true joy in you and intimacy with you and a relationship with you. 
Remove those barriers. Help us to hold fast, to draw near, to move on to maturity in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.